And welcome once again to Father Spitzer's Universe at the intersection where faith and reason intersect, of course. I'm Doug Keck, the gatekeeper of sorts here in Mother Angelica Way in Irondale, Alabama, where Mother started it all at the mothership, as Father Spitzer would say. And of course, you can email your questions to us at spitzersuniverse at ew10.com. Incredibly important, especially uh, for this program, because we're going to be just really dealing with your questions. But just a reminder, check out all of Father Spitzer's websites. There's the magiscenter.com and the purposefuluniverse.com and spitzerscenter.org. The last one is a .org, so remember that. And of course, this program, Father Spitzer's Universe, is always available on our EW10 YouTube channel and on our EW10 On Demand page. And during this year of Eucharistic Revival, be sure to check out all our programs on the Eucharist. Uh, shows like Deacon Halberg Sivers and Father Brian Milady's The Eucharist, A Taste of Heaven and Earth, and Scott Hahn's ever popular The Lamb Supper, which he did with Jeff Cavins, will deepen your faith in the most blessed sacrament. And boy, do we need it now, and it's always free, and it's always available on demand 24-7 on EWTN. And do we mention it's free? And a book of the month for November, Rejoicing in Our Hope is with our great friend Bishop Robert J. Baker based on some short spots he did for us on Advent and Christmas over the years. And our topic today is answering your questions, the ones you sent in to us. So to kick things off, we turn to our friend in Orange County at Christ Cathedral, the one and only <laughs> Mr. Universe himself, Father Robert Spitzer, who will lead us in prayer. <laughs> Very good, then. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Heavenly Father, we give you thanks for your many blessings to us, the blessing especially of this ministry and our ability to serve in it. Sir, send your Holy Spirit down upon us now, Doug, myself, our whole audience this day, so that everything we do and say will be brought to fruition in your will for the good of your people, your church, and your kingdom. We ask all of these things through Jesus our Lord. Amen. Amen and Mary, seat of wisdom, pray, pray for, for us. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, amen. Very good, so we've got questions, so we might as well kick them off right away. Dear Father Spitzer, could you, could you please explain what exactly is an indulgence? I always thought that when the priest gave me absolution and confession for, you know, for my sins, that they were forgiven and put behind me. Now I'm told I may be punished for these sins in purgatory, even though they've been confessed and forgiven. This is from Kenny, so he's well, a bit confused. Yeah. Well, Kenny, uh, the idea of being punished for them uh, in purgatory is not a very good way of looking at it. Uh, basically, purgatory, meaning you will be purged of them. There is, of course, uh, some kind of a uh, form of what they call temporal um, punishment that you know accrues to the sin itself. It's mm -hmm. not like um, you know God is out there going, well, now Kenny's. Um, got um, uh, he's done this and this, so I'm going to have to punish him extra in purgatory uh, because of what he did. But it, what happens is that when we actually start sinning or even creating habits of sinfulness and things of that nature, it gets really hard to break those habits and attachments. Mm -hmm. And these things, you know, they are really 
they're painful uh, to detach ourselves from. And, I mean, purification is not an easy process. And to give things up that we really desire, to say no to things that we really want, or to, to kinds of lifestyles that we've adapted ourselves to, or even to habits that we have acquired, uh, is, a, is a tough process. It's a painful process. You might call it, it's almost like a, a temporal penalty mm -hmm. that comes with the accumulation of sinfulness, um, uh, you know, over the years. And so, of course, we're asking the Lord, uh, um, you know, uh, to grant us an indulgence, to grant us in some way some freedom to detach ourselves from these things, to be released uh, from that mm -hmm. kind of, um, uh, you know, uh, temporal uh, penalty that accrues to our sinfulness. Uh, it's not like, you know, God is out there um, you know, punishing us for what we have done. Believe me, our sinfulness enough and the habits of sinfulness and the attachments to sin and the breaking of those things will be a penalty enough. Mm -hmm. We don't need to get an extra punishment from God. So I think the word punishment, unfortunately, it's always used with the active voice mm -hmm. in you know um, our culture today. So people think automatically, well, God's just whipping up some new punishments mm -hmm. to make sure we pay for what we did uh, when we were um, uh, on earth. But in fact, uh, God is really not into the vengeance mode. Mm -hmm. uh, what he's basically uh, doing is helping us to overcome uh, the natural kinds of uh, pains that, uh, you know, accrue to sin. Mm -hmm. I mean, and they do. And, mm -hmm. you know, frankly, sometimes when we are confronted by what we have done to mm -hmm. others and we see the damage that we have done, and, and you know, that in, in purgatory is part of the detachment process, is that uh, there is that, uh, you know, uh, you know, dealing with right. what we have done uh, in our past as well. And we're asking God to have freedom uh, from that uh, penalty, right. freedom uh, and indulgence to, uh, you know, when you say, uh, you know, an, an indult or to be released in some sense uh, from the punishment that has naturally accrued to what we have done, uh, by our own sinfulness. Mm -hmm. And so that's basically what an indulgence is asking for. And so uh, hopefully, uh, um, you know, um, you know, the, you know, the, the, the idea there is that uh, if we perform certain kinds of sacrifices, that we are basically uh, uh, helping the process of detachment along right. so that, that um, those sacrifices don't have to be repeated per se in purgatory or they may be exceeded by God's good grace in purgatory. Right, exactly, and it's like a lot of things. It's not just an outward sign. There has to be an inward commitment and a change as well as part of this thing. It's not just, yeah. you know, I pay my Absolutely. I pay my fee and I get my, my ticket to heaven kind of a thing. It doesn't work that way. <laughs> Absolutely right. true, Doug, and that is very correct. You have to have the same firm purpose of amendment, the same desire, uh, you know, contrition for uh, your, your sins, a firm purpose of amendment that, you know, where you, you know, that's going to help you in your freedom uh, to put that indulgence right. into practice so that it releases you from those penalties. Yes. Okay, very good. Uh, next up, dear Father Spitzer, I always enjoy your program and respect your opinion. At the recent synod, 
Many people were insisting women be ordained as priests and deacons. Personally, I'm against this, but would appreciate hearing your opinion and general knowledge on this subject. Paulette. Uh, Paulette? Okay. Uh, well, Paulette, I think uh, two things are important. Uh, as you probably saw, Pope Francis came out uh, against that and said that it was uh, uh, not um, a part of Catholic teaching that um, uh, that women uh, should be ordained um, and that would include ordained to the priesthood or the diaconate right. now um, you know to, to you know what's the rationale that uh, that stands behind it I mean in the first place it's the um, the historical rationale um, so did Jesus himself um, you know, appoint um, women to ordained positions. And it's, it seems that he did not. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, there's been a lot of scholarship and a, uh, that has been done on this subject and it's been done um, for, you know, uh, two purposes. I mean, the first purpose is, well, was this just historically anachronistic? In other words, mm -hmm. was Jesus j didn't, did he do this because he didn't want to offend the culture in All which right. he was living mm -hmm. or break precedent from the culture in which he was living? Or did he do this because something ontologically, uh, you know, something was there that prevented him from doing it for all cultures and all times, not just his culture and his time. The church made the determination that it was for all cultures and all times, that there is something there um, that uh, Jesus had in mind uh, that uh, basically um, um, uh, explains why he didn't uh, appoint uh, women to those positions that we would call ordained positions today. Mm -hmm. um, did the church actually accede to this? Yes, uh, the church did, because you can see uh, from the, um, in the Acts of the Apostles uh, that women were not appointed uh, uh, to the presbyter position during that time, and the same determination was made uh, by uh, the church in that regard. In other words, it wasn't just something that was situational or cultural, uh, but would soon be over, you know, uh, superseded once people were enlightened uh, in some degree. It seems as if that was something that was intrinsic uh, to God's will and intention uh, from the beginning. So that, um, uh, right. you know, when you look at that, that probably explains why the church has uh, done what it has done. There has been certainly an anthropological debate that has gone on, um, you know, uh, over the course of time. But the situation can't be solved philosophically or anthropologically, uh, you know, because it's not that. It's what did God want? Mm -hmm. uh, that, is the, that is the question that the church has to answer. What did Jesus want? What did Jesus intend, uh, you know, in, in these uh, offices, of uh, these consecrated offices? So, I mean, that seems to be what he wanted. I mean, the church says it was what he wanted, and therefore um, the, the issue is not going to be resolved anthropologically, and it's not going to be resolved, you know, sociologically, biologically, mm -hmm. or ontologically. So, right. you, know, you know, for me to rehearse all of those 
explanations that have happened, right. they're all going to be superseded by the church's judgment on what God wanted, you know. Right. What did he reveal through the Holy Spirit? What did Jesus say? What did Jesus do? What did the early church do? Uh, was it culturally anachronistic? They say no, it's right. a matter of his intention. And so that's yeah. well, where we think, are and what we will do. You, you would think on one level that if he was worried about offending people, he wouldn't be claiming to be God. Uh, that might be the thing that, you know, maybe would supersede yeah. over ordaining women yeah. uh, in his group yeah. or asking people to eat his body and blood on a regular basis. Uh, I would think that those oh, would have yeah. been a little more shocking than worrying about yeah. whether Mary Magdalene was ordained a deaconess or something. But uh, Yeah, yeah, no, that is correct. And, right. and, you know, the idea of trying to say that Jesus had something ontological or anthropological in mind Honestly, that is such guesswork. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, I mean, obviously men and women are different. They are different. And, you know, to, uh, to simply say, wow. reduce everything to, uh, uh, you know, uh, uh, some kind of a, a scale, you know, right. or, you know, there's some kind of a, a mysterious femininity. My gosh, there's, it's not just X versus Y chromosomes, although that certainly is important. It's not just cell division in the brain and specialization in the brain. There is really a masculine ethos and a feminine ethos, right. and that seems to be intrinsic to our nature, perhaps even to our souls. Right. You know, is there like, hmm. you know, a soul that's feminine? I would say yes. Hmm. I would say that there's a soul that's maxim uh, that's masculine in a sense. There's an ethos of masculinity, an ethos of femininity. Yes, of course, the appropriation of that ethos uh, may be weaker or stronger in various personalities, but for all intents and purposes, the argument's right. never going to lie there. Right. The argument is going to lie in what God intended and what God wanted. And right. we have to base that on Jesus and our best views of what Jesus intended and wanted in the light, too, of what the right. early church did. And even if we look at, you know, historically where, where this has been permitted, let's say, in the Anglican Church or in the Episcopal Church and other places, it's not seemingly uh, have, have somehow turned things around in those particular denominations. So, you know. No, in fact, the opposite. Right. The absolute opposite. I mean, so I think the sociological, I haven't studied this, but as far as I know, uh, I would say that uh, whenever, you know, that has occurred, um, it's certainly not led to increased numbers. I think it has led definitely to decreased numbers and to increased division within those churches and eventually a, a series of separations and separations yeah. from separations that have happened. It's not been uh, generally a unitive experience within those churches, let alone one that increases the denominations. Um, you know, and, right. and, and from its appeal uh, to the culture. Uh, seemingly, the appeal to the culture, the more traditional churches appeal more to the to, to culture. So, um, you know, and that seems to be the case even today. Um, so, um, uh, right. you know, the, the, the churches that are most successful uh, seem to have kept to that uh, bifurcation. Right. In fact, uh, I know there was an article using one of the programs I read recently. It was a study had come out, I think, out, out of Catholic U about the, the younger priests being incredibly much more orthodox, quote-unquote, conservative doctrinaire uh, and, and yeah, than oh they yeah. used to be uh, 30 years ago or 40 years ago when it was a much yeah. more 
of a progressive kind of liberal sure. approach. And so those are the people who are attracted to the church, too. So, Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And also, uh, you know, um, I mean, I, I, again, you know, using Mary Douglas's, you know, anthropological analysis, you know, or using something like Carol Gilligan's uh, analysis, you know, maybe that has something to do with it in the will of God. You know, uh, Carol Gilligan pointed out that, you know, women tend to like unmediated uh, relationships where there can be a sharing of feeling, mm. um, you know, directly, uh, you know, and the empathy, which Edith Stein also supports, mm. uh, you know, really does bear that out. And so uh, the masculine ethos, however, does not seem to share the uh, the direct uh, feelings, the unmediated relationship, but prefers the mediated relationship where things are mediated by rules of law, hmm. rules of games when you're a little kid, uh, by, um, uh, you know, sports rules, things of that nature where there's always some kind of a hmm. law or a structure that mediates the relationship. You, so it just isn't based on uh, an intuitive or a felt um, uh, commiseration with the person that's there. So it, when you look at it, you have to think to yourself, well, you know, does that have something to do with it that uh, men tend to gravitate toward the law, hmm. favor the law, uh, not only that, but use the law to mediate relationships versus women who, you know, this is, this is not me, this is Carol Gilligan and Edith Stein, uh, women tending to be more unmediated, less need for structure, law, etc. Does this propensity toward structure and law versus unmediated uh, relational kind of attachment, does that have something to do with it? To me, it, there's, a, there's a clue there. I, I'm not saying that that's what Jesus had. I'm not an interpreter of God's mind, but it, there's a clue there right. because I do think in the churches that have the highest structure, the churches that have the highest hierarchy, those churches are definitely much more successful over the course of time. Right. And so that, you know, that need, respect, favoring of the law, the structure, um, you know, the process, uh, you know, is really important uh, to uh, the not only the longevity, but the well-being of the church. And you can see this, uh, certainly, even in the earliest church, because, um, you know, the Pauline churches were very structured. First, there's apostles, then there's the prophets, and then there's the teachers, right? You know, you go through this. Mm -hmm. He's got a hierarchy. You can see Jesus has got a hierarchy. <coughs> Excuse me. First, there's Peter, <clears throat> then there's the, tw uh, the twelve, you know, <clears throat> and then of course there's the seventy, uh, you know, disciples. But there's a, a natural hierarchy that is being developed, and so you look at that, and there's all sort of hierarchy <clears throat> in the Joannine Church. However, that hierarchy was abandoned, and if you ever read Raymond Brown's book, the church. Um, um, uh, of the beloved disciple, mm -hmm. if you read that book, 
it ends, of course, because if you read the, the first, second, and third letters of John, uh, basically the, the Johannine church in Ephesus is coming apart at the seams, mm -hmm. and the Gnostics are tearing it apart, and syncretism is coming in right and left, and there is no authoritative administrative structure. Mm -hmm. And John is saying, look, we're eyewitness, we have seen, we have heard, but there's not the, an appeal to Petrine authority until the very end mm -hmm. of his gospel. And, of course, at that point, you know, where Peter is obviously appointed the, the shepherd, that is there in the gospel, how uh, the chief shepherd. But if you look at those letters, you know, he's trying to, uh, you know, on the basis of his authority as eyewitness, bring it together. But without that Petrine office, without that authoritative structure that Paul has mm -hmm. integrated into his church, man, that church just fell apart, practically disappeared. And the whole tragic uh, tale is right. is really portrayed there in that uh, church of the beloved disciple. But anyway, the right. the idea uh, is that may have something to do with it. That may be a clue. Right. But I'm, uh, you know, I can't read God's mind. And anyway, right. I don't want to re, uh, refer this back to an anthropological explanation, because. Um, I think it really depends on Jesus and, right. and what Jesus had in mind. Maybe it was th that there is a natural uh, need for law structure process. Right. Uh, maybe, you know, of course, we need empathy, uh, as Edith Stein calls it, the great gift of women. I mean, without empathy, where would we be? We, right. we would be just lost in a state of utter loneliness from the time that we were infants onward. So we need both gifts. But they, they tend to cancel each other out sometimes. Mm -hmm. But I do think Carol Gilligan's insight about unmediated and mediated is very, uh, relationships are very important. I right. think the law structure process insight <clears throat> is, uh, versus intuition and empathy uh, insight is also important. Right. But um, whatever Jesus intended, uh, that's what the right. church has discerned, and that's where right. we stand. Well, I, I used to think in some ways uh, the receptivity of women uh, was a more natural connection with uh, church relationships, in a sense, rather than it was for men. And so it seems like women have a greater affinity in, naturally for religion. I don't know if that's true, but I used to think if the reason our Lord picked the men was because if he didn't have them doing something, they probably would be outside smoking cigarettes. So, you know. <laughs> Well, I do think, well, you know, St. Teresa of Avila certain, certainly thought that women were much more sensitive mm -hmm. uh, to religion and to religious experience and to prayer. I mean, she, she comes out and says, you know, this is a great gift of women as well. So, I mean, there's just that many things. And if you look at what women are doing in the church today, let's face it, who's running the elementary schools? Who's running uh, the, the, the public uh, welfare uh, projects? Who's running, uh, you know, half the stuff in the parish, more than right. half the stuff in the Absolutely. parish. Absolutely. Right. It's women, 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 women. I mean, they are there. They are, you know, absolute apostles. They're not ordained apostles, uh, you know, because, you know, right there is where the rubber hits the road on law structure process. And I think there's something in that clue, and I'm not going any further than that. Okay. But I do think um, that's okay. maybe what Jesus had in mind as the church discerns it. Very good. Next up, dear Father Spitzer, I had the privilege of hearing you speak at a recent diocesan professional development day in Colorado and wanted to ask a question regarding oh. your comments on understanding the creation of Adam and Eve and the generation of nations. My question is, how do we explain the human genetic diversity from just two original parents? And this is Sister 
Anna Joy O.P. Yeah, um, you know, the, the genetic diversity, of course, is, you know, one of the big uh, questions that, that comes up. The idea, though, um, is that our first, um, you know, ensouled parents, of course, are uh, Adam and Eve. Now, are there other progeny, uh, you know, so let's uh, just uh, uh, take a look at, um, you know, as the, uh, the, the uh, uh, diversity from them. They're ensouled. That's what makes them. Uh, different, but uh, you know the differentiation, right? Remember, we come from the same um, uh, what we call genetic parents, right? That mm -hmm. would be mitochondrial Eve and Y chromosome Adam. Yet somehow uh, there is genetic diversity that comes from those two individuals who, of course, we carry their uh, DNA with um, with us all the time. So mitochondrial uh, DNA is our remnant that's in all of us from um, uh, mitochondria Eve and of course uh, the Y chromosome in men is from Y chromosome Adam. Mm -hmm. Yet there is a great deal of, of uh, genetic diversity that happens over the course of time. Now that can also happen just, you know, God chooses to ensoul uh, Adam and Eve and the progeny of of Adam and Eve, uh, and of course, it, it is a, you know, if uh, Berwick and Chomsky are correct, it is a single member uh, of the species that seems to have uh, this linguistic, trilateral linguistic capacity, um, you know, um, uh, fr from, you know, about maybe 60,000 years ago. So uh, if that's the case, could there be a, a lot of genetic diversity that could happen uh, when those individuals interact with um, uh, beings that were not um, of, uh, of uh, you know, necessarily just the progeny of, uh, of a Y chromosome ad of, of uh, excuse me, uh, the first insult Adam and Eve? And the answer is yes. So there's all kinds of Homo sapiens sapiens out mm -hmm. there, and um, you know, uh, if if there is a relationship, you know, fit, you know, t 20 generations down with all these people that are out there, right? Or 10 generations, or two mm -hmm. generations, or five generations down with all these people are out there. If God chooses to insult those individuals that come from that relationship then that those individuals are going to have the same capacity as in sold Adam and in sold Eve mm -hmm. so there could easily be genetic diversity just from the other uh, uh, progeny of Y chromosome Adam and mitochondrial Eve that um, you know that uh, weren't uh, part of Adam and Eve but Adam and Eve's progeny actually uh, okay. mated with that could happen easily enough okay very good uh, we got a couple of minutes we've got about four minutes till we take the mm -hmm. break another question dear father spitzer sure i was reading the passage in the bible about the wedding feast at cana i always thought that the wine yeah. jesus created was the best simply because it came from him is there some or some deeper meaning i am not seeing in the steward's words about saving the best for last nancy well nancy you know um i would just say your explanation is perfectly correct yeah that the uh, the wine steward is simply saying this is the best he's ever had and mm -hmm. and uh, the reason is it comes from jesus he he decided to to you know to do it right quote unquote right and you might think well gee that's pretty superficial you know uh who cares well in that setting um it's not just you know uh, the uh, the jars of wine uh, that are important 
the, the fact is, is that Jesus actually, uh, because of his mother's request, sees this very human concern as something which is important to her, important to them, and therefore it's not beneath God mm -hmm. and it's not beneath her son to be concerned about mm -hmm. it. So she basically, um, you know, says, you know, oh, uh, you know, uh, I'd like you to help out here. And he says, what is this, uh, you know, concern of yours have to do with me? Mm -hmm. And of course, Mary doesn't take that. She just goes over and says, do whatever he tells you. You know, <laughs> I mean, she, she basically, uh, uh, you know, uh, uh, tells him, you know, uh, you know, I'm, I'm going to spoil your schedule. And Jesus did have, you know, he obviously had a schedule in mind for when he wanted his first uh, miracle to occur. Mm -hmm. But um, uh, seemingly his mother just said, oh, I'm, I'm asking you for a favor and out of love for her. And of course, she, that's why she's such a great intercessor. Mm -hmm. uh, I mean, out of love for her, she, he actually exceeds and, and uh, you know, does what he wants and, and uh, does this uh, miracle that seems, uh, you know, to many people, well, gee, uh, you know, it's just a human fact. Mm -hmm. But for Mary, it was very important that these people not be embarrassed and, mm -hmm. and that, uh, uh, you know, that uh, her son be revealed uh, through, uh, this little uh, act of love uh, that she helped uh, to make a reality. Right, okay, very good. Well, we're uh, gonna take a break here because uh, we have much more ahead, many more questions uh, to go through with Father Spitzer in the second part. So Father, just stay right there and we'll be back in a minute. And of course, <laughs> we invite you all to stay as well. We've got a lot of questions we'll get to in the next half hour, stay with us. Welcome back to part two of Father Spitzer's Universe as we're answering your questions in this special program, all sent in by you. Uh, so we encourage you to do that on a regular basis. I also want to remind you about the wonderful National Eucharistic Revival that's coming July 17th through the 21st, 2024 in Indianapolis, Indiana. Celebrate the power of the Eucharist with us. Go to EWTN.com forward slash Eucharist to see how you can register at a special discount rate. Father Spitzer will be there. A lot of the EWTN personalities and crew will be there. We'll be covering the whole event, so make sure you check that out. We hope to see you there. It's kind of like a semi-family celebration, so check that out on our website. And we return now to Father Spitzer. Are you ready uh, for part two here of questions, Father? Yes. Okay, first up. Ready. <laughs> Dear Father Spitzer, I know that many Catholics have strong attachments or devotions to particular saints. I believe that the way to the Father is through Jesus. When do devotions to saints through icons, statues, etc., cross the line into idolatry of idols? It just seems that all that time spent praying to saints could be better spent reading the Bible and praying and building our relationship with God, the Father, Son, Holy Spirit, thoughts. And this is Chris. I wonder where 
if Chris is a convert yeah. or, or what Chris has been listening yeah. to, but go well, ahead. No, yeah, <laughs> right. No, Chris has a good question. And uh, the, the key thing is it, comes, it goes all the way back to the second century, um, you know, where you can actually see the graffiti all over the Vatican walls. You know, St. Peter, pray for us. St. Paul, pray for us. Mother Mary, pray for us. Blessed Virgin, pray for us, et cetera, et cetera. So you can see, you know, that there's a, a, a huge history mm -hmm. of, of um, prayers and devotion to St. It goes back to the first century. The reason that happened, I think, is best explained by Bishop Fulton J. Sheen. One time, you know, a, a, you know, a, a person who I, I think he was a Protestant came up and he said, you know, Archbishop Sheen, he says, uh, I got to tell you, um, you know, this this thing of praying to Mary, you know, it just doesn't make any sense to me. And he used the exact logic you did. You know, if I, if Catholics spent less time. Uh, praying uh, to, to Mary, they would spend it on praying to Jesus, and that's where it would really count. Mm -hmm. And uh, Sheen just turned to him and, and he said, you know, if, if I love your mother, does that mean that I love you any less? Mm -hmm. And of course, that was a brilliant answer, mm -hmm. because of course, when you when you love a person, you just don't love them in isolation. Mm -hmm. Of course, you love them also through their beloveds. And of course, Jesus loved his mother. So loving the beloved of, uh, the one, of your beloved is still a beloved. Mm -hmm. And of course, the same thing occurs with saints. The saints are beloved of Jesus. They're people who tried to serve Jesus in heroically virtuous and courageous ways. And of course, these are part of his family. Mm -hmm. So if you love a person's brother or love a person's sister or, you know, love their relatives, of course you don't love them any less. It's a natural extension of uh, you know, the love that you have for Jesus. You see, um, you know, him in, uh, you know, these brothers and sisters and mother. And of course, you know, when you're looking at that mm -hmm. and with this natural extension, you say, well, how much can you do before it becomes idolatrous? I mean, it's, it's not like love has to be apportioned like mm -hmm. money. You give the money to that guy, you can't give it to that guy. Love is just the opposite. If you, the more you, you love uh, the beloved of, uh, you know, your main beloved, Jesus, uh, you're not going to cut back on, you know, him being beloved mm -hmm. either. So uh, my sense is love them all mm -hmm. and, uh, you know, and love them generously. Jesus isn't going to resent it. You're not going to wow. get any less of a relationship with Jesus. I'll tell you one thing, my relationship with Mary, I relate to her differently than I relate to Jesus. Mm -hmm. And of course, I love relating to Mary. And uh, does she help me with my moral conversion and my spiritual conversion? Yes, she does. Mm -hmm. And does she do it in a different way from Jesus? Yes, she does. And the more I, you know, am attached to her and the more I want to please her, is that going to help me uh, overall become virtuous? Yes, it mm -hmm. will. Just as, you know, relating to Jesus, that's a different ethos. And of course, relating to the Father, it's not because Jesus and the Father are so different. It's me. You know, it's my uh, ability to relate. I'm a, you know, a partial guy, right? So, I, I'm, you know, I'm a kind of a, a 
segmented consciousness, if I can mm -hmm. put it that way. And so, of course, I, I relate to Mary differently than I relate to Jesus. I relate to the Spirit. I relate to the Father. I relate to uh, St. Peter. I relate to St. Paul, etc. Mm -hmm. But, of course, you can see that the more, the merrier. And that's the whole idea of what we call interpersonal personhood. If you love a person's mm -hmm. family, you wind up loving each member of the family more. Mm -hmm. Strange as it may seem, the idea of family, and of course that's what Mary has created through her fiat, is this uh, great family of salvation, right, that, that's united, of course, in Jesus' mystical body, but she has put it together. She has this place in it. Mm -hmm. To love her is to love the family. To love the family is to love the uh, individuals within the family and so you got not only get a two for or a three for or a four for mm -hmm. you get an infinity for practically yeah. speaking you know you've got all these people uh, that you are able to love through one another and so yes yeah. that's the logic of love the strange harmonious multiplicative you know uh, dimension of mm -hmm. love and so please love right. the saints all you wish Love Mary all you wish. You won't be taking right. away from Jesus. You'll right. just be finding new paths to love him ever more deeply and to enhance your moral and spiritual conversion ever more deeply. Well, what's great about the, the church, in, it, it offers you all these various opportunities to relate differently, like yeah. you're indicating. Now, you could decide, mm -hmm. as this person could decide, that that's not really my spirituality. I'd rather read the Bible and, yeah. and talk to Jesus directly. That, yeah. That's fine. That's terrific. Nobody has sure. any problems with that, right? Yeah, you're not forced to. No. Yeah, but don't take it away from somebody else who's receiving great benefit right. from it and conversion from it and relationship uh, with Jesus through those saints. I mean, right. uh, uh, when I, you know, read about the saints, I don't just read about them uh, individually in isolation from God or Jesus. The, the whole point about the saints is they had this tremendous spirituality and this relationship with Jesus. I love reading every single book of St. Teresa of Avila. Mm -hmm. Every one of them mm -hmm. is fantastic because she's always blurting out, oh my Lord, you know, and she's just so filled with affection and her relationship is just wearing it just right out there. Her heart is definitely all over the place on her sleeve. It's on display. And I just think it's so wonderful. I can't, I'm addicted to the woman mm -hmm. because I'm telling you, she loves so deeply. She causes me to love ever more deeply. And I look at the same thing with all the saints who mm -hmm. loved Mary, or I love, you know, the, you know, the, you know, the, all the, the, the saints that have such other, you know, devotions in their own way. Yeah. I mean, St. Ignatius of Loyola, he was definitely a Jesus guy, but he also was very, very, uh, you know, what helped to convert him was all these saints. So he, you know, by the time he, he was on the verge of his conversion, what he was saying is not that I just want to be with Jesus alone. I want to be like St. Francis and I want to be like St. Benedict. You know, I, in other words, he is wanting to follow in their footsteps, not because of any kind of a desire to compete with them or, uh, you know, to, to do the same uh, out of any other motive than for love right. and to serve our uh, Lord. And so through right. them, he actually loved the Lord more. And he, so he admitted it uh, yeah. often uh, in his own, uh, not only autobiography, but in his letters. Right.
Well, I think the Ten Commandments talk about honoring our, our father and our mother, so I think it's, it's okay to do that. The <laughs> yeah. other thing that struck me, I mean, you yeah. had a situation like this, and I've heard it said before probably by some of the apologists, it'd be like somebody coming up and saying, uh, well, uh, you know, I have some illness in my family, could you pray for us? And they say, no, no, you, why don't you just pray to Jesus directly? What are you bothering me for? Yeah, yeah. Well, if you did that, I mean, you know, let's face it, love compounds on love. Right. And the Lord meant from the very beginning to share uh, the ability to affect the salvation, to affect the health, to affect, uh, you know, the needs of others in a positive way through our prayers. Right. Jesus didn't want to hog the mission to right. himself. Mm -hmm. If anything, he was absolutely adamant about sharing it with everybody so that everybody could participate in the salvific process. So that was Jesus' intention. He wasn't saying, stay away, I'll get it done myself. Right. Right. He was saying, you do it. Get out there, you pray, you affect other people's salvation. I'm going to respect that. I'm leaving room. That's why Paul says in the letter to the Colossians chapter 1, I think it was verse 12, where he says, I count it, you know, a blessing that I am able in my own body hmm. to uh, make up for what is lacking in the sufferings of Christ. He didn't mean lacking ontologically in the sufferings of Christ. What he meant was that Christ made room for him to have a place in the whole order of salvation. Mm -hmm. And he said, I want this. I, I'm so happy Christ did this, allowed me, you know, Paul, to have a place with him to affect salvation, that my prayers should count, that my sufferings can be offered up with his sufferings mm -hmm. for the salvation of the world. I'm so happy I get to be included. Me too. Mm -hmm. I mean, I'm just, it's a, the, the honor of my life that I get in there and that my prayers can count as right. well. Absolutely. Next up, dear Father Spitzer, I have read many sad news articles lately about parents abusing, even killing their own children. It's horrible. My husband and I were never able to have children, which I've tried to accept as God's will. It's getting increasingly difficult to accept and understand why God would bless abusive parents with children and not loving parents as I believe my husband and I would have been. Sarah. Well, Sarah, the whole thing you're leaving out of the equation there is human freedom. Mm -hmm. I mean, I don't think you intentionally did that, but human freedom is a real important part of God's plan for human beings in creation. He wants us to make free choices to love and you have made a free choice to love it's a great thing he, you know he didn't give you children to do that maybe it was not an opportunity for you to have uh, adopted uh, a child uh, as well you know because i know the adoption lists are huge and it's very hard to uh, adopt a child but uh, you know if that is what the case is then that love that you would have exemplified God sees it, and when you get into the kingdom of heaven, you can just share that love all around the place because uh, there will be ample opportunity. That's what heaven is about and what mm -hmm. heaven is for. And in the case of the abusive parent, it's just, okay, God gave them a, a child, but they chose, they freely chose not to love that child. Mm -hmm. Now you look at that and you go, well, 
Why did God do that? Well, he does that with every potential sinful action that we could perform, right? So in other words, uh, you know, God, uh, you know, says, well, here, I'm going to give to Joe Schmo here uh, the ability to make a lot of money, even though Joe Schmo is going to use this money to do terrible, horrible things. I'm going to, and he's also going to say, you know, um, uh, you know, human beings elected Hitler into power. I'm not going to say this guy's going to be a rat, so I'll tell you what, I'm going to lobotomize him up front. Mm -hmm. Because if God went ahead and did that, and every single time a person would get money or get some power, uh, even though it came about by a natural means, uh, you know, and of course, God respects natural causation. If he starts going, I got to lobotomize Joe, I got to lobotomize Mary, they're going to use the gift in the wrong way, they're not going to do rightly, hmm. none of us would have any freedom anymore. We'd be so scared to act because we go, oh, oh mm. you know, if I do say the wrong, think the wrong thing, I'm going to get zapped. So I think I better keep my mouth shut and do nothing. I mean, so, you know, God's got to mm -hmm. let us be free. Right. He can't go around right. lobotomizing bad guys. So um, don't worry. It's not like, you know, God selected you not to have children and God selected natural processes did that. And right. if you didn't, couldn't get a child on the adoption list, that's natural right. processes or human processes. Right. That was what happened. So don't worry about it. it. You know, right now you'll get plenty of people to shower that beautiful love you have upon right in the kingdom of heaven. Right. And we think, as we've talked about in the shows with the 63 million plus abortions, uh, that's a good reason yeah. why there's also not a lot of children available for adoption in some places, right? Yeah, some that other, is true. Other thing. That is very true. Dear Father Spitzer, I believe clergy should stop saying that they are sinners without making it clear that their sins are rarely mortal. The laity that are committing very serious sin are emboldened to continue knowing that the clergy are doing the same. Walter. Well, Walter, you know, that is a a good clarification that I probably ought to make of myself uh, because I know I'm, um, you know, the impatient type and I know that I've got my downfalls, you know, my definite pride and vanity and I know it. But um, I think it is probably a very good thing to just, uh, you know, when you talk about your own sinfulness uh, and I am definitely a sinner. Um, when I talk about it, I should probably say, yes, I'm not going from mortal sin to mortal sin. Mm -hmm. uh, I think, you know, when you become, a, a, you know, when you're in the clergy, mm -hmm. you really become what St. Ignatius of Loyola would call a man of the second week. Mm -hmm. There are some terrible failures uh, where the, that doesn't happen, where, you know, a person doesn't become a man of the second week. That is to say that they're, you know, trying uh, earnestly to improve in moral and spiritual conversion and the, the grace of their priesthood that they're spending their prayer and and their their lives attempting not only to serve God's people and to advance mm -hmm. the kingdom of God but to create deeper moral conversion as example uh, for the people around them but boy mm -hmm. we're not perfect clergy are not perfect uh, but they are the vast majority of clergy I know and the vast majority of clergy who have influenced me throughout my life were absolutely men of the second week. Mm -hmm. They were absolutely dedicated 
to wanting to adhere to Christ's moral teaching, and they were deaf, not perfectly, but they were, right. they were trying their level best. And they were trying their level best to pray and trying their level best to do the service to the kingdom, the advancement of the kingdom, the service to the people of God, both in charity and the corporal works of mercy and, the, um, uh, and also the salvific works of mercy. So all these things mm -hmm. are, are there uh, no doubt about it, uh, in most priests' lives. And they are, by and large, really, really very good people. But, you know, would I say I'm a saint or something? Oh, you know, I, I, I can get impatient. I can be an egoist. I can, you know, sometimes mm -hmm. just be dismissive. I can definitely... You know, if I'm rushed or something, and maybe I don't take time to be with people who are reaching out to me, I know, you know, I ain't no saint. Right. But, of course, I'm a man of the second week, and the priests that I know are trying to be right. men of the second week. They're really trying to deepen their moral conversion, as well as serve the kingdom and serve God and serve the people of God. Right, absolutely. Here we've got uh, about five or six minutes left. Another question. Dear Father Spitzer, mm -hmm. now I watch your show every week and I find it both informative and transformative. Thank you for your valuable teaching. Like you, I suffer from retinitis pigmatosa. Mine started about 15 yeah. years ago and has progressed quickly. I'm learning to adapt as I'm in my early 60s. I prayed for many years discerning if I should enter the diaconate to become a permanent deacon. However, I've been told that a blind man cannot enter the diaconate or become a priest. Is this true? I assume your eyes degenerated after your ordination, Michael. Yes. Uh, well, Mike, uh, actually, I, I know two people who were blind and mm -hmm. were admitted to the priesthood. Uh, you know, so that, first of all, that is not true. Right. Uh, so whoever said that, um, definitely there are people who are blind or going blind, known to be going blind, uh, that enter into the priesthood. In my case, I was 30 years old. And it was in my third year of theology. So that's right before ordination, mm -hmm. like about um, uh, six, uh, well, a whole year before my ordination when I was uh, definitely um, in, uh, in Israel and uh, also in the Middle East. Uh, that, you know, I discovered that I could not read the pointing on the Hebrew. Mm. And, of course, uh, it was diagnosed as retinitis pigmentosa. So nearly a year before my ordination, I knew, they told me, you are going to go blind probably when you're around 65. Mm. Boy, was that a spot-on prediction. So, but, I was, you know, I was about 68 uh, when I finally went blind. But that was pretty mm. close. So I told my provincial this right away. And I just said, you know, I'm going to be progressively losing my eyesight. And I'm going to be uh, progressively going blind. Um, you know, and I actually said to him, uh, this is a, a true statement, uh, right before, you know, I, I, I told him, I said, you know, I'm going blind. And I said, I know I'm damaged goods. And I <laughs> said, you know, it's still about seven, eight months before my ordination. I understand completely if I need to go. Uh, give me the word and I'm out of here. And he turned to me and he said, Bob, what spirit have you been listening Absolutely. to? Absolutely. 
So the blindness was not a concern of his. He knew that by the time I was around 65, 68, uh, I was going to go blind. And he knew it. And I was ordained with everybody else. Mm -hmm. So um, there you go. Right. I mean, um, so I, I'm not sure what uh, that person was referring to. Right. Maybe there is a rule in that diocese regarding a person who is blind, but it is not right. by any means in canon law or universal. Right. So, um, like I said, I know two Jesuits who are blind, right. um, who are uh, blind but before, right. way before ordination, like in the novitiate. And maybe he can he you can know. check with the other diocese or check with his own diocese. And I have to say, yeah. I quote that line of yours all yeah. the time. That's great when, when when things are going wrong yeah. and stuff like that, or people say something that yeah. you know is like contravening yeah. what they should be. I think that's a great line. What yeah. your your mentor told you, you know, who are you who are you listening to, yeah. right? Right, exactly. <laughs> yeah, what spirit are you, are you listening, listening to? to? Yeah, exactly. All I was right. dumbfounded we, when he said it. I, <laughs> I was trying we, to be honest. <laughs> we got three minutes, and this is the last question. Okay, I'm assuming. I get it, dear Father Spitzer. I have a I relative who seems to think that the Book of Revelation supports their Protestant idea that Christian faith should be based on the Bible alone. In Saint John. It states that if anyone adds to words on, of the scroll, they will be punished by God. My relative believes that since Catholics also rely on tradition, they're doing something heretical. How can I respond to her that this is an errant position to take, Lorraine? Lorraine, here is the, the main thing uh, to look at. Uh, of course, the you know the adding to the uh, to the Book of Revelations is about trying to, in some sense alter the prophecies that have been given by the person we identify as John the prophet. John the prophet is very, very probably not John the beloved disciple who wrote the gospel and the first three letters of John. Mm -hmm. He is a different individual living at a later point in time. He is a person who uses apocalyptic language. He's a visionary, very different from the beloved disciple. Now he is talking in that verse. What he's saying is not adds to the scripture per se, mm -hmm. uh, totally. What he is saying is that if anybody tries to modify, adopt, add to the revelations and specific visions I have here, anathema sit, right? You, you know, you can't do that. Uh, the, the ones that come from me are the ones that come from me. Now, that's very different from the way your Protestant friends are interpreting that passage. Mm -hmm. uh, by the way, there are several different passages in the scripture, first of all, that allow for tradition in addition to um, uh, you know, to, to the words of Scripture. Mm -hmm. And so you can see that in the Pauline uh, language. But here is the response you should give to your, um, to your friends there right away. There would be no canon of Scripture were it not for the church acting according to her powers given to her to make that decision which becomes a part of tradition. In other words, if you didn't have a church for the first four centuries who finally made the determination that book X, Y, and Z are going to be part of the scriptures, if you didn't have the church having a power 
independent of the scriptures, you'd never have a Bible. Because, of course, in the Bible, they couldn't have prescribed what the books of the Bible would be. Mm -hmm. Because, of course, the books of the Bible were still out there. So, what do you, you know, they were completely diversified. They weren't in any unified thing. You had to have somebody right. say, that one's going to belong. And so, uh, so what? If you had a book that was a completely, you know, unmitigated, wasn't even part of a Bible or a, a unity of the Bible, and that book said, right. here are the books that you want in the scriptures. Of course, they couldn't have done it historically anyway. But, you know, even if you right. did have it, why would you take that book and right. make it a part of scripture? So, of course, it's ridiculous. It's absolutely ridiculous to say that, you know, the, the church, uh, you know, that doctrine could be based on the scripture alone. You had to have a church to make right. the determination of what is scripture. Right. And then that church of deciding independently right. of scripture what is part of scripture, that right. would have, of course, Especially when enabled you right, those. And you, and you come out of a culture yeah. that's heavily based on oral tradition to begin with. With that being said, Father, yeah. can you give us your blessing on the way out the door? Absolutely. Bow your heads and pray for God's blessing. And may the Lord of all wisdom, may the Lord of all knowledge, may the Lord of unrestricted intelligence send his spirit down upon you to continue to enlighten you and to help you to make all of the, the nuances to advance the church and advance your culture and advance the people around you so that they may truly see in their hearts the love of Christ, the wisdom of Christ, in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, amen. Amen. Thank you so much, Father Spencer. Great to see you, and we shall see you next time. And we hope to see everybody next time. Don't forget about Father Spitzer's wonderful DVDs and all those wonderful books, especially his new ones. They're available through EWTN's Religious Catalog. We'll continue with our show topic, Moral Wisdom of the Catholic Church, next time from his fabulous book, and we've got a couple of bookmarks coming up this weekend, two fine children's books. We've got Good Night Jesus by our friend Kate Sidnor and also Brides of Christ presented by Sister Mary Josepha. Both wonderful kids' books for Christmas Sunday at 10 a.m. Eastern Time. And, of course, Father Spitzer's Universe is always available on our podcast central. If you're looking for the audio, go to EWTN.com forward slash radio and click on podcast. You can listen to Mother Angelica, Father Spitzer, all your favorites. Anytime you want, 24-7, just download them or listen to them directly. It's all on our EW10 Podcast Central, where Catholics all get together for the best in Catholic information and entertainment. I'm Doug Keck. We'll see you next time.